Well, all right, everyone. Today, I have one of my favorite guests on the show again. Um, he's Mr. Deming to me, Lee Deming to others. He was my civics teacher in high school, and arguably the reason I am who I am today politically. He introduced me to Ron Paul, Tom Woods, and the whole Liberty community. So it's always a pleasure to have him on. Um, for anyone who wants to listen to the introductory episode that I had with him, where we kind of go through the background, talk about libertarianism, um, nullification and uh, how we met and um, education, the class that, that he taught. Uh, check out episode 58. Um, you can also check, that, check out episode 50, or wait, that's 55 where I had him on for the introductory one. Um, but we also did an episode where we read parts of the Declaration of Independence for Celebration of Independence Day. That was episode 58. Um, I had him on again where we discussed the one year anniversary of January 6th. This was pulled off of YouTube. So you'll have to find it on all audio podcatchers. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I think it's also on Odyssey, which is like a YouTube alternative um, owned by some libertarians. Uh, that is episode 72. And then episode 73, we read through the Supreme Court case that struck down the OSHA vaccine mandate. Um, that Supreme Court case was National Federation of Independent Business versus OSHA. And then the last episode I had him on for was episode 79, where Mr. Deming announced that he was running for the legislature in House, Dist House District 55. Um, this episode is episode 85. And like I said, it's always great to have you on. Um, how's it going, Mr. Deming? I'm doing good, Lee. I'm sorry. As you were talking, I... I thought all kinds of stuff I wanted to talk about. So I've been writing it down. Here. Okay. Yeah, no problem. We'll get lot. to it. <laughs> There's a lot. Um, in fact, something I uh, almost texted you about this morning that I just learned uh, the name for. And uh, it's probably something we should talk about when we get a chance. So, yeah, uh, it's going pretty well, uh, Liam. Uh, what's happened is that I dropped everything when I started uh, campaigning. And literally everything. It was just uh, campaigning, not 24-7, but it seemed like it. And then uh, so lately I've been trying to catch up and, and go into a few meetings here and there. Not as many meetings as I probably should be going to, but um, some meetings where the Republicans in Montana uh, in the legislature are uh, setting up kind of goals for the upcoming session. And uh, I, I, last week I attended two of those meetings. And one was in person and one was on Zoom. And they were interestingly different uh, meetings. They were, so there's a, a divide in the Republican Party in Montana. And uh, there are some that are uh, trying to push one agenda and another pushing a different agenda. Now, they're not entirely different, but they are different enough to notice. So is there uh, any like interesting? Yeah. Is there any underlying theme that you can like characterize each agenda as like is one focused on one thing and the other agenda focused on others or, or how would you characterize them? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So uh, I think one group is more cautious and one group isn't. Okay. So <laughs> uh, I'm frankly, I'm kind of in the camp of less caution. Uh, I, um, I think you strike while the iron is hot. I, I agree. And I agree. And if I know anything about the legislature and the makeup of it, it seems that 
the less cautious group has more power right now. I know the last legislative session, they were able they were able to override um, one of the governor's vetoes if we're talking about the same group. So I also agree and I hope and, and what I've been feeling is that when you are in the legislature, you'll be a little less passive than I think the establishment might want you to be. <laughs> um, and I think that's a very good thing. But uh, before we get into all of that, I just I figured I would just bring everyone back to the, where we left off in the last episode I had you on for. Um, when I last talked to you on here, you had just announced you were running for office, I think only a few days before. Um, and now here we are a few months later. And it really, to me, it feels like it was only a couple of weeks ago because um, the, the entire semester just went by so quick. Um, but for you, I know it, it was a lot of hours of just campaigning, knocking doors, um, both you and your wife. And this has just been a, a crazy experience for you. So I just wanted to first congratulate you and then ask you how campaigning was and um, some of the stories that you gained from that experience. I, I went to your um, uh, celebration party that you had, and there were a few sh stories that you shared. So I wonder if you can just um, share some of those stories and some of the insights you gained from campaigning. Yeah, sure. So uh, it was um, it was a long slog. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. You know, I knew that candidates went out and campaigned, obviously, and I knew they went door to door. I had a few of them come out here, uh, but the uh, the idea is to cover in person as many areas as you can. And since this is a primary election among Republicans, what you are supposed to do instead of going to every house, uh, because Democrats are obviously going to probably vote in the Democratic primary. In Montana, we have closed primaries, uh, excuse me, open primaries, private choice. So you can go in and vote in the primary, but in private, you have to pick one or the other uh, political party. And so I targeted uh, hard Republicans and then uh, weak Republicans and then swing voters. But uh, we did all kinds of flyers. I shouldn't say all kinds. We did, I think we put out four flyers, uh, mailers, I guess they call them. And uh, we also put a... Uh, a door knocker, or um, it's just a, another flyer on somebody's door for every door in uh, Laurel. And then um, I, throughout the campaign, I was uh, spending afternoons and evenings, uh, most afternoons and evenings, um, knocking on doors and talking to people directly. And if they would take a flyer or a brochure from me, I would give that to them and then have sometimes a conversation. So those were the most fun part of the whole thing, having conversations with people I haven't seen literally in over 30 years and, uh, or catching up with, with uh, former students or parents of former students uh, that I would probably have never, never otherwise uh, seen or had an occasion to visit. And uh, that was enlightening, but it was also uh, gratifying. You know, you can talk to a former student you hadn't seen literally one of the first doors I knocked on was a student who I didn't recognize, but uh, who is in my first class here in Laurel, like 1986. And we had a nice conversation and uh, caught up how he's doing. Uh, I don't know if he voted for me or not. It didn't matter because we got a chance to visit. And so I, 
that was really a good, uh, really good thing. So um, uh, one of the stories I told, uh, you're, there's a couple things you're not supposed to do while you're out of the doors. And of course, I didn't know this. I'm brand new at this. Um, even though I've taught the theory of government for a long time, the door-to-door, day-to-day kind of stuff, I didn't know. <laughs> so anyway, you're not supposed to go to anybody's house. So the second house whose door I knocked at and somebody came to the door, um, uh, Phil asked me in. I said, well, okay. Well, let's... well he started making coffee. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I've got all of First Avenue and uh, to do, and you can do about 15 doors an hour if you don't go into anybody's house. Anyway, I started making coffee and there I was. I had a nice conversation with the guy and he was very supportive of the kinds of things I was talking about, but um, I finally, I put the coffee cup down and excused myself. I said, man, I got to go. I got stuff to do. And anyway, uh, so that was kind of a, I don't know, that was kind of a fun thing. And then uh, another one, one of my favorite stories, the whole campaign, I was uh, up in a neighborhood uh, outside of town subdivision. And um, like I said, I was targeting hard Republicans and I, I just left a house and there was two people, uh, husband and wife, I assumed outside of their house in their driveway. And uh, they looked like they were out doing yard work and uh, I, they weren't on my list, but they were out there. I figured I'd talk to them. So I walked over there and, and as I got closer, I could hear that they were kind of uh, chewing each other out. And before I could turn around and leave, the, uh, the guy says to me, he says, uh, well, we've already interrupted us. You might as well uh, state your piece. And I, I said, well, I'm, I'm okay. Look, I, I'm a candidate for office. And he said, well, come on in here. And uh, so the, uh, they were arguing over paint colors in their house. <laughs> so I, says, I, I said to them, well, I only have a short spiel and I have this brochure. Would you, would you take this flyer from me? And uh, so the gal says to me, so uh, which color, color do you think? So I'm standing here in this, these people's driveway with a paint chip in my hand and looking over here at the, at the fence and it's matching. And I says, well, you know, I think that that's a great color to go with the house. And, and she goes to her husband, see, I told <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know if I got one or two votes or no votes there, but uh, they're standing out in the middle of somebody's yard holding paint chip up and giving them advice on their house paint. Uh, one other story. Can you manage one more? Yeah, go ahead. So uh, like I said, I talked to former students and parents of former students all over town and outside of town as well. So another subdivision, um, I, I had a list of addresses of hard Republicans and the names, and I'd recognize the name and it's somebody that I had gotten, uh, not necessarily gotten along with years ago. And in fact, we had kind of a uh, row over it. And I figured he was permanently mad at me. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go see. So I walk up there, knocked on the door. And remember, we had been on the outs. I mean, uh, pretty angry um separation even though we'd been reasonably close before that uh 30 years ago 
And so it was almost a relief. It looked like to me on the man's face that um, he had a chance to visit and we reconciled there in the door. And so that was very powerful for me. And how else would I, that have ever happened uh, except for me actually going door to door to talk to people? So I thought, you know, as hard as that was, and it was harder than I thought it was going to be. I, I knew the work. I didn't know the type of work it was going to be. Uh, there was a level of work that I was prepared for, but not the other. But anyway, uh, that that was almost worth the whole campaign, to be honest with you. It was a very moving experience for me very gratifying to see and have a reconciliation after all these years. So that's, uh, that's the update. And then uh, election shows up and we, uh, uh, I can't remember, 72, 28, I think. Um, I wanted, since I have no opponent in the general election, then uh, people are calling me representative elect. I don't know if that's the way it should be, but uh, that's so far I'm probably going to the legislature in January. Yeah. Well, that, that's all very incredibly, it has to be incredibly fulfilling now. I mean, I know that when you first joined, you were kind of hesitant. You didn't like asking people for money and being on the spot like that, but having those experiences, I'm sure it really defined the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you say that you're representative elect, but you don't think it should be that way. Is that because someone could technically enter as an independent or something like that um, to challenge you in the general. Yeah. That's, that's the only, that's the only thing that I'm hesitant about. And yes, I was hesitant to run. I think I told you guys that when we were uh, considering when, when I told you on your show that I was going to run for office, I was very hesitant. Um, I, I, I don't want to be in the limelight ever, but you know, there's an opening and opportunity and, uh, the lunacy that's going on around uh, somebody's got to step in and stop it. And I'd, I'd like to be able to do my part. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you signed or you signed the paper like the day, the last day, right? It was towards the end. It was. Uh, so I, uh, I entered the race on a Friday and the deadline was on that next Monday. Okay. And uh, so I'd had, I'd had a group of people. I think I told you, uh, who would approach me and have it, had I thought about running for office. And when I initially said no, I hadn't, that actually, that wasn't accurate. I may have explained this. Uh, I just want to make sure that everybody gets the right story. Uh, I had 20 years ago considered running and I thought, you know, everybody should step up and do their part. And I, I felt pretty confident, not necessarily I'd get elected, but that I could do some good. Uh, and, and, uh, so I had thought about it before, but I rejected it because I had so much going. And one of the things I had going 20 years ago was, uh, getting into the, we, the people program. And that was so important to kids that I just couldn't see being gone in the most important, some of the most important parts of that, you know, when you're going to the competitions and getting kids ready for that. And that's, as you know, a very powerful program. And so I didn't want to lose that. And I just gave up. I never thought about it until these people asked me had I considered running so that's yeah, that. well, I mean it seems like everything kind of came together perfectly then I mean because I, I do think that you um having taught all of these kids for so long I think I think that that definitely benefited you here I 
I know, I think it was your granddaughter was running your Facebook account. And when she announced that uh, you were running, even students who I would guess are more left-leaning, I think came out just to support because when you build relationships at such a local level, I think that that people will support you either way. Because I mean, one, they know that a Democrat's not going to win here. So it's like, well, you might as well have the person that you know um, right. elected. Well, and that you can, you know, you can uh, approach to, you know, those kids are not kids now, but those uh, former students, I think they feel relatively comfortable if they had a problem with something I was doing. Um, I, they'd be able to talk to me. Sorry, I have to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I, and I welcome that even the ones that don't think uh, I'm uh, sufficiently woke enough <laughs> or whatever yeah well i mean just aside just on an aside really quick did, did you have anything like that when you were um teaching did anyone ever confront you oh uh, absolutely yeah yeah interestingly enough uh more so in the regular civics classes in the honors classes i mean i and you know the way i did stuff i had uh, a portrait of lincoln there in the classroom and underneath it, I wrote worst president ever. And uh, I, I kind of think he isn't, although he's pretty close. Uh, and finally, a kid challenged me and he, he said, Mr. Amy, that blanks me off. And I, <laughs> I said, good, let's talk about that. So we spent a good uh, uh, class period and part of the uh, uh, next day talking about Lincoln and why I consider him to be uh, one of the worst. And that was a very productive day. So it, yeah. So yeah, people didn't challenge me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I really enjoyed your class. And if anyone wants to learn more about that, they should go back and listen to episode 55. Um, but to get into the upcoming session, when does the, the next session start? Jan uh, first, first week of January. Okay. And then um, maybe what, what is like the agenda of that other group that you would associate with? What do you think that the legislation is going, what do you think they're going to start to push? Um, what are you going to prioritize? And I guess, what is the process to get to there? Are there any formalities that you're going through right now um, to prepare? Not really. Uh, not really. I'm doing uh, quite a bit of research though. Uh, and I've made some inquiries into the state. Um, there's uh, the Republican Party and probably the Democrats as well have people on staff who uh, can do quite a bit of research for legislators. And so I have requested some of that research. I've received back some very interesting stuff about uh, uh, particularly the judiciary in Montana. Um, there's, I wasn't aware of this and I'm a little sheepish of admitting it, but I knew there was a problem with the Montana judiciary, but I didn't realize that the Montana Supreme Court um, has kind of tried to run, this is the way it's been portrayed, uh, roughshod over the legislature and uh, taken some liberties with uh, the interpreta interpretation of the Constitution. Now, remember, this is, this is speculative uh, right now, and it's not something, even though I've been doing some research, I'm not 100% convinced that this is the problem. However, it's been a explained to me as if the uh, Montana Supreme Court um, has interpreted the Constitution 
in a Montana constitution in a way that uh, it, it maybe shouldn't be. And it has to do with uh, legislative subpoena power. So uh, there's some other things that I've been researching and, you know, I spend some time every day trying to get prepared, uh, you know, with the research uh, on these issues, because I'm going to have to know it, obviously, as we go into the session. Uh, and I've been getting some help that way. So that was kind of nice for me to know that uh, there is, there are groups or people that will answer questions that I have about, you know, and ask, what does the constitution say? And, and uh, person would send me back a, uh, a screenshot of the constitution, the page in question. And I was, I'd read the Montana constitution before, but it's been a while. Uh, and uh, I was a little bit shocked that it was so easy to read, particularly the judiciary. You know, uh, I don't know if you knew this. I probably told you guys this a couple of times in class. But when I started teaching that class, my I think I was least comfortable with the judicial branch and how that operated. And so I took some training, uh, um, went to a judicial institute and learned as much as I could about it. And so it's been kind of a focus because I felt I need to brush up on it. Well, it, it still is, so anyway. Yeah, well, I know at least at the national level, like part of the problem is that it wasn't defined. They, they kind of left it open. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know much about the judiciary here, but what, what I have heard is um, similar things. I had it um, broken down to me that there's like this body that is supposed to oversee the Supreme Court and you can kind of submit appeals if you think that there's been any injustice or um, maybe a justice needs to be impeached or something. But that this board, supposedly, I, I, don't, I haven't looked into this myself, this board is appointed by the Supreme Court justices themselves. So I think what, what has been argued, and I don't know if this is the same issue, is that it should be the legislative branch that is overseeing the judiciary, not the judiciary themselves. Well, I think the way the, the language is uh, about that particular board, um, I think it was set up, I think, pretty well, actually. But uh, since the Supreme Court, uh, in, to my understanding, selects the people on the on that board, you know, they're going to select friends. They're not going to select people who would be critical of them, probably. Uh, so that's uh, that's just one of the things that I'm getting ready for and trying to. Uh, and who knows? I haven't even I haven't been assigned to any committees. Uh, I've requested to, that I'd like to serve on a uh, couple of committees, and that I don't know where that is in the works. I actually don't know how that's determined. Uh, if a uh, group of legislators does that or not, I don't know. But anyway. yeah, I, I am interested in that, the judiciary stuff. I know, I mean, if, if you just look up Montana Supreme Court corrupt, you're going to get a lot of stuff. I've, I've heard um, some people like, I know the Americans for Prosperity people, um, some of them have told me that uh, based off of certain metrics, the Montana Supreme Court is actually more corrupt or um, liberal than most Supreme Courts in the country. Um, I'd be interested to look into it myself. I don't know if that's true, but I know that there have been complaints about like 
um, CPS and the way the judges handle handle them here. Um, there was also that controversy last session where a lot of the justices had to recuse themselves themselves from some case that involved emails and it actually delayed delayed the legislative session. So I'm very interested in that and um, everything involving the judiciary, especially. Um, I, I, I'm I, I'd like to see stuff like along the lines of like jury nullification uh, legislation um, push in the in the legislative session. So I yeah, it's it's a very interesting topic and I, I'd love to hear an update as you go along. Well, we'll uh, I'll update you as much as I can. Uh, we probably won't update you uh, some of the things that I suspect um, on camera. Oh, yeah. But we'll talk about it later. Uh, and that is one of the things that I think we need to do in, in the state. Um, so the Supreme Court is elected and uh, in Montana, and that's a, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Mm -hmm. uh, they have eight-year terms, and I understand why they have eight-year terms. And uh, there does seem to be uh, too much power uh, flowing to that branch. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a fight. And Madison was all for having a fight between, you know, the different branches, because if they're all jealous... They will retain whatever power, try to keep power, take power from the other branch. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong theoretically with that idea. But if you get an imbalance, that has to be addressed. And I think the legislature is awake to that need that we need to do that. And I suspect that just about whatever passes through the legislature in this session will be challenged in the Montana Supreme Court. Then we have to ask. And I'm also going to say that uh, chances are that some of the decisions Montana Supreme Court already has made and will probably make in the near future will be challenged at the U.S. Supreme Court level. Wow. Yeah. And I know uh, the, the gun issue was a really big problem last session with um, uh, carrying on universities that there seems to be they seem to have jurisdiction over the universities or some board does. And the Supreme Court ruled that the legislative because there was legislation that passed last session that allowed um, carrying on campus. And the Supreme Court said that the legislature didn't have authority to pass that or to decide for the universities. Um, right. The Board of Regents is uh, the right. governing body there. And yeah, the Supreme Court, to my understanding, uh, said that they, that's the proper spot for it. Well, uh, okay, so, so the Board of Regents um, you know, what other uh, rights does the Board of Regents get to take away from uh, adults in this country besides the right to keep and bear arms, the right of self-defense? You know, and uh, there was a, a serious problem. I, I, I don't want to say that there are uh, a number of uh, incidents, but there were certainly, uh, the press was indicating that there was a number of problems on uh, college campuses in Montana, in particular, as I remember, at the University of Montana with rapes. And so, so women can't defend themselves. Um, I suppose they can carry pepper spray. And I, I would recommend that uh, first, to be honest with you. Uh, but to choose your weapon of self-defense, I don't know. seems like that would solve a lot of problems. Yeah, I actually met a few um, women this last semester while I was going to UM who uh, they, they couldn't carry, but they kept it in their car 
or at the police department um, because, I mean, their family had told them that they should carry and defend themselves because of UM's problem. I mean, like the fact that a book called Missoula was written about UM um, and, and their whole problem, I think, I mean, that's perfect reason to allow people to carry there. Um, but a, a selfish thing that, I, that I've been kind of thinking about with the Supreme Court that I've been looking into is, you know, I, I'm trying to go to law school, or at least I think that I am. I'm kind of, I go back and forth on it, but I'm, as many people know, I'm taking a gap year now and I'm planning on applying next fall. Um, something that I think is a little crazy is the accommodation process with like universities, um, how certain or accreditation uh, process with certain universities. So um, the bar that actually approves which universities you get your degree from and then um, gives the stamp of approval whether or not you can be an attorney in the state um, is appointed by the Supreme Court or is a creation of the Montana Supreme Court. So to me, mm-hmm. I, I don't really know how to explain this, but to me, it seems like this this weird conflict of interest where you have like the body, the Supreme Court that, that kind of is the final say in the state on all things legal, um, defining what is the perfect character for their, their attorneys that come to um, defend certain cases. And, and to me, I wonder if there, there could be like another bar that is set up or legislation that is passed to like allow competition and allow uh, different boards to approve different attorneys with different philosophies, like legal philosophies. Like why do they all have to go through these two bar approved universities in order to practice in the state? Um, so that's something that I've been focusing on and, and looking into with uh, the Montana Supreme Court. Um, to me, that just seems like a conflict of interest right there. Well, it does. It does seem like it. Uh, competition, I think, would be a good thing. Yeah, uh, for everybody, uh, but particularly the students. So you get a chance to choose between a couple of different uh, accredited law schools. Um, then you'd want to go to the best one, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think the regulatory process in just about every instance is, uh, I, I think it can be counterproductive. I think that that philosophy can go across all kinds of uh, areas too. It's not law schools or anything. So um, regular regulations, uh, keeping people out of uh, getting into a business because of some kind of regulation, because there's, you know, we already have enough, uh, whatever you want to call it, hairdressers or anything like that. We got plenty. We need, we need to be board certified. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily that good of an idea. And I, I do go ahead. I do think the legislature could be convinced on that because they got rid of um, uh, certificate of need laws last session. So certificate of need, what what that requires is um, if you want to start like a ho- uh, a hospital in the state, you have to go to this board, or I think it's in the county. You have to go to a county board and actually ask all of the hospitals that are currently established in that county whether or not there's a need so you have to go to your competitors and say hey do you think there's any need for more hospitals in the county and what do you think they're going to say so yeah i think that that principle can be applied to more things and i think 
um, the neglected one is universities and their accredited institutions. Um, but yeah, that's that was just something that I've been focusing on, but I'm interested, what are your priorities going to be? I know that last time we talked, you you mentioned the three issues that you were going to run on, but are there any more, as you've like campaigned, are there any more concrete things that you're thinking of, any legislation that you want to introduce? And um, yeah, what are your immediate things that come to mind? So uh, I think one of the things I've written down here that I'd, I'd like to talk about if we have time uh, and we should make time if we don't have it, the Roe v. Wade. Uh, and that's the right to life is the biggest issue that I have really. And it's, it should be the biggest issue anybody has the defense of innocent life. Uh, I don't think there's any question that that is one of my priorities. And so uh, I, I've heard over and over again that there is uh, no appetite in Montana for a ban. Well, we'll see. <laughs> so do you know, is there, is there anyone else talking about it or do you think you'll be the only? Oh, no, I th there's uh, the convention, GOP convention just uh, ended, which I did not attend, uh, by the way. And uh, they, they passed a plank in a platform that uh, called for uh, a ban without exception. And so uh, that's something that I would support. Um, although there's a question as to whether or not the um, physical health of the mother needs to be a uh, you know, exception. And, and I think there, it does. Uh, it, it's apparently statistically so rare that that, you know, you have to choose one or the other that it's almost a moot point, but the almost concerns me. So uh, that's, that's what I want to do. I want a uh, uh, total ban if I can do it uh, and help get that passed. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the main things. Yeah, to me on that issue, um, if, if you don't have the exception for the women's health, I think you what you run the risk of is um, the, the doctor being put in a very interesting legal position because in those times, I think that they there are standards and um, I think the doctors typically what they will do if, if the woman's life is at risk, they will save the woman instead of the baby. And right. if, if it's illegal for them to do that, then there becomes some really, I think, terrible legal questions, but they are so rare that I think that that, that exception is a really good one. Right. Well, and I, I think it may be necessary that, but here's the counter argument. And uh, this is something that everybody's going to have to come to terms with. The counter argument is this, that, so what constitutes the health of the mother? Is it physical health? Is it mental health? You know, gosh, I'm going to be stressed about having this baby. So uh, I need an abortion. And so I think, you have to be very careful of the language in that to make sure that health of the mother is uh, is uh, absolutely necessary physical health. And so uh, that I'm going to pay close attention to that part of it. Um, so anyway, that's my number one issue. Um, I'm going to be a pro-life guy right to the bitter end. And we'll see if there's an appetite for a total ban in Montana. 
Yeah, I know. I think the other hurdle in Montana is that privacy is protected in the state. Um, do you have you listened to any conversations about that and how legislators will get around that? Yeah, so the Armstrong case is is going to be the uh, sticking point. The Supreme Court of Montana has has said, and I think the U.S. Supreme Court has weakened the argument, but it's still there that Montana's robust uh, privacy protections uh, will protect women's right to choose uh, to abort their babies. And there's a couple things there. First is okay, clearly I am for, uh, in favor of the right to privacy. There's no question about that, but who's privacy? I, I can't think of a more uh, clear violation of the right to privacy than a, uh, an abortion that, that kills a baby. Uh, so, you know, like when the Supreme Court in uh, the Dobbs case versus Jackson, they talked about the baby has a, an interest in life. Well, they also got an interest in privacy, you know? And so there's a, there's something I think that has missed by a lot of people. And it's not that I was some genius came up with it. I just read the Montana constitution and in the uh, article two, the section about the rights um, that are protected by the Montana constitution, article two, section four, I think uh, states that and, and listen to the way this is worded. Uh, the dignity of the human being is inviolable. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> it doesn't say human person. Yeah. It says human being is inviolable. Now, it, if you're going to interpret the Constitution to give the right to privacy to uh, women seeking to kill their babies, I think you have to you have to look at the Constitution, the entire document, and say, well, a human being, right? The uh, inviolable, and then it goes on to talk about persons, and um, it, it's it's kind of a privacy section as well. However, uh, that's how it starts in in that uh, Article Two, Section Four, and uh, I think that's right, but I could be wrong on the numbers. I was never very good at numbers. Yeah, I, th I think uh, you made a good point that, um, or you hinted at it, there's even in Roe and, and Casey, I think um, where their argument kind of started to collapse is that it did acknowledge, it, it acknowledged many liberty interests. And uh, what the court was in the business of doing is balancing those liberty interests. And they ended up preferring um, the right to privacy in Roe and Casey. But I think that there's no, um, I mean, that really is, is the point where the whole case, especially at the national level, falls apart. So if, if the Montana Constitution protects privacy, and then they're also protecting the dignity of everyone, um, I think if that case is brought to the Supreme Court, it would be really hard for them to uphold abortion again, if legislation has been passed, um, when, when they're trying to balance those two things, I'm not sure. But again, the Supreme Court seems to be <laughs> um, pretty powerful here. So who knows? Yeah, I think they're going to, 
Well, well, I, I don't think we can we can let that stop us either. I think uh, if we're really a right to life party, which we just said again uh, in the convention, then we have to be a right to life party. We have to do it. We have to actually act. And so to act, uh, let's say a total ban, um, rather than regard what the Supreme Court may or may not do, uh, it, I think that's cowardice. So I think we just uh, pass what we can, uh, get the most pro-life legislation we can get passed, and then make the court strike it down. Uh, and I think that'd be an interesting case, um, frankly, uh, if that, and it, it would be appealed obviously to the Supreme Court, to the US Supreme Court, no matter what happens. Uh, it'd be an interesting case for them to, to, uh, to take. I think they should take it, but I would suspect they don't because what they said essentially was that it's not up to the U.S. Supreme Court anymore. It's up to the states. So here you go, states, um, figure it out. And if Montana figures it out by the Montana Supreme Court striking down our pro-life laws, well, um, then I guess we have, some, have to do some other options. We have to figure out a way. At that point, I think it would just be getting new justices on the court. That would be the other avenue. And I know that that's something that um, is already being looked at. Right. And uh, there's another option, too, where the legislature can define, can set up courts. So uh, the legislature can set up a court to deal with only constitutional questions. Oh, wow. And I mean, <laughs> an amendment, too, right? They, they could change yeah. the constitution which I know is already being considered because of the Board of Regents issue and many mm -hmm. other issues. So, <laughs> I mean, we might even have a constitutional convention. That's, mm -hmm. it's, it's possible that happens because uh, as we've talked about in, in previous podcasts, um, Montana adopted the principle that, that Jefferson talked about that we actually um, vote on whether or not we're gonna get rid of our constitution every, right. is it 20 years? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's, uh, every generation. So uh, we've talked about this in the past. You have uh, consent. Every generation gets to consent or not to your constitution. Uh, and that was genius, I think. Of course, nobody ever votes for it. <laughs> we should. We should try to rewrite that. I think we could clarify a lot of things in the constitution. Yeah, because I mean, that's a very, especially if if we talk about Spooner, which we, we've talked about on previous podcasts, that's a very soft form of consent. You know, it's the, the fact that you're forced to either stick with a constitution or vote to renew one. And then it's based off of majoritarianism. And yeah, it's, it's all weird. Um, but I, I am curious, we already got into one of the arguments um, that people bring up, pro-choice people bring up that uh, pro-life people aren't really concerned with the life of um, the woman and her her life being at risk. Uh, maybe let's talk about more of that and and some of the other concerns that are brought up. I know people bring up like um, contraception. Uh, what would a bill? Do you think that the bill would have to be defined in such a way that it um, protects contraception? Um, yeah. But what do you think about that? And, and just no. other types of birth control and yeah i don't think it has to I, I think they have to be separate issues even though they're clearly linked i think uh for the legislature to deal with that and and uh i have my own ideas about contraception but 
it's really kind of up to uh, an individual in that case. Once the baby's been conceived, then you've got another liberty interest in that in that baby. The baby has the same liberty interest as the mom or the dad, for that matter, right? And so, uh, I think the the uh, contraception issue is different, and it has to be handled in a different way. Yeah, that, that is interesting that you bring it up. And this is kind of where the, the libertarian principle, I think, enters the conversation. I think um, a lot of people say that that people who are pro-life are um, abandoning their libertarian principles here. But I think we acknowledge that there are two liberty interests. And then what you just described with the contraceptive argument is one might consistently hold that contracept contraceptives are immoral things but they are, this is actually um, something that is uh, within your liberty interest because there isn't someone else's liberty interest involved. Right. Now, I think you could, you could make a libertarian argument actually for uh, uh, banning contraception, but I, I just don't think that's, I don't think it flies. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do think that once you have a person and a human being, then they and and this is this is where I think a lot of uh, left libertarians or libertarians or not quite libertarians go wrong. That's a person. It says, and if you say it's not a person in there, you're denying science. You know, we got to follow the science. So uh, that liberty interest resides in that in that baby just as much as mom and dad. There's, there's just no question about it. And speaking of libertarianism, what's the main principle of libertarianism? What's the one, number one thing? Well, it's nap. So the non-aggression principle, uh, I can't think of a, a clearer example of violation of the nap than abortion. So libertarians who don't think that got it absolutely wrong. And, and I think that where, where they come to it is they, it's the my body, my choice argument. They think that there's some uh, liberty there. But I think actually Dave Smith has a really unique argument here that I, I haven't heard before. Um, and it's that, even pro-choicers acknowledge that it isn't their body, their choice, because if there's any point at which you say that abortion is not allowed, um, if it's, for instance, the third trimester, then you acknowledge at some point it isn't your body and your choice. So the question then just becomes where at in this process are you um, deciding that it's no longer your choice and no longer your body involved? Um, so he thinks the whole argument actually collapsed there because why why is it that all of a sudden at 15 weeks, it's your body, your choice? And that's not even the argument that is made. The argument that is made is privacy. Uh, it has nothing to do with your bodily autonomy. It's, it's about your um, you know, dealings with a doctor. Uh, so he says, well, the only point that um, isn't arbitrary is con conception. Right. Um, or all the way at the end. So you either have to say all the way at the end, if you're going to make the my body, my choice argument, or it has to be conception. And I think that I, I had never heard that argument before, but I, I, I think that that's kind of where I'm starting to um, find myself. But I, there, to me, there is still a question of, of governance here and the state. I, I, I do have <laughs> worries about um, a police state and, and what it might involve trying to prosecute these things because we know with all the all the things that we agree with like even murder um 
you know, we murder should be illegal. However, we also know that a lot of innocent people are prosecuted for <laughs> murder. So it's not a question of, you know, this thing shouldn't be, this thing shouldn't or shouldn't be prohibited, because I think we both agree there. It's you, you still, I think, have to have concerns about uh, an overly powerful state and, and keep your eyes on it, um, even in cases of murder. Uh, just be watchful because this is a runaway body. Um, government is, I think, inherently kind of unethical. Um, so there are those concerns, but because there are those concerns, we wouldn't just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, murder shouldn't be something that's stopped. So uh, there's a lot there. Let me tell you what I'm thinking um, on that entire argument. So uh, the state is, is runaway. And it, as I told you guys over and over again, it just continues to get more powerful. Well, one of the things that Roe v. Wade did was to chop back on the federal government's power. It took power out of its own hands and put it in the hands of the states. Well, that's the way it should be. That's exactly how the government should operate. And so, so what we find is that, is that uh, contrary to what um, pro-abortion radicals are saying, uh, they did exactly what they were supposed to do and turn that back. So, so even though it's a runaway state, um, it, there's some hope there. And with this court, hopefully this court can continue that, that uh, uh, taking power away from its own hands. That's why that Roe v. Wade is so extraordinary. And the pro-abort uh, radicals, uh, the crazies, have it absolutely wrong. See, now we can fight it out in the States. That's exactly where it belongs. And, you know, Ron Paul, uh, he said, he said that for decades, that argument belongs in the States. Yeah. Now uh, let's, let's take another look at it. So uh, the runaway state uh, killed 63 million babies. So, uh, the the state that we have now, which is slightly less runaway, is going to save the babies. So uh, I I'm all for this new less powerful state. I don't know. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that helps a lot. And I I, um, I also think that this this Dobbs v Jackson case is just so interesting, and I think it it really gets at the core of so many. Um, philosophical questions within libertarianism. Um, there, there's a debate within libertarianism about decentralization versus protecting individual rights, whether it's at the federal level or the local level. Level There's kind of this split. Do you think that even the federal government can intervene at the local level if there's violations of rights? And then there's also the, the camp that just says we should decentralize. And that, that it, it's a very controversial um, debate that I, I see both sides to. But then there's also the question of, of liberty, life, and all of these other questions with, it, it really is just the crux of libertarianism in this case, because it's involving um, liber liberty, um, individual liberty when it comes to the baby. It's involving state power and decentralization. And I think Dobbs and, and this most recent decision just handled it exactly right, because it's one of the first times I think you see a body a governmental body take so much power and then just be like, actually, we don't have this power. 
which to me at any time a governmental body of any sort says that i think i have to celebrate that yeah i think we have to celebrate no matter who and that's why i think uh the radical abortionists pro-abortion people um i think they've got it wrong I really do. I uh, Okay, it was legal in all 50 states, and they've lost that ability to kill their kids. Okay, uh, that's, you know, I guess that's a, a loss of liberty. But, but whose liberty are we really talking about? You know, what we did is, what the Supreme Court did is it gave life back to potentially 63 million babies that may have been aborted over the next 50 years. Um, no, no wonder. I mean, you and I celebrate that because we're for that, but even pro abort people should say, well, look, you've always wanted, you've told us you want it to be safe, uh, available, safe and um, rare. We've heard that for decades. Well, that's, it's, it's going to be just those things in states they're going to continue to allow it uh now i i think it's reprehensible i really do don't get me wrong i think i think it's a greatest moral evil its country's ever participated in uh but uh pro board people need to wake up yeah well i i I thought it was funny after dobbs v jackson there were so many people protesting in the streets um, and they were in the states that abortion would continue to be legal in Mm -hmm. and i think that this just goes to show the absolute dishonesty and kind of um how would you say it negligence of of the media to actually have it be that some some people think that after roe v wade what happened was that abortion was prohibited in all 50 states because i heard that some people were saying they they took away the right to abortion and um Technically, if you look at the language of the case, right, what they said is there is no constitutional right to abortion, but that isn't removing the right. It's saying that we, as the Supreme Court, recognize no right. It is up to you, the people, the legislature or the states to um, decide that. So the, the fact that there was anyone who thought that suddenly abortion would be prohibited in any 50 states, I think, I mean, it, it shows just how negligent the media is, but also how powerful the Supreme Court became, that in, in 1973, all of a sudden, they just assumed that they had this power to legislate across all 50 states. I think they did a disservice to pro-choice people, too, because what ended up happening is they they gave this false sense of kind of confidence that this would be a thing that existed. But I mean, once you once you put that amount of power and only what five justices hands because you need a five for a majority i mean that all it takes is a different makeup of the court and then you could have had an entirely different environment political environment and they're very lucky that there weren't pro-choice people who made the exact same legal argument made in 1973 but instead picked the liberty interest of uh the the fetal life um because that could have happened and i think that 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 is why both sides should reject centralization. Yeah. So uh, I've got an issue with uh, decentralization, even though I think it's the right theoretical move. If we're going to have state governments and we're going to have them forever, I'd rather have it like this, where we get to fight it out 
at, at our state legislature. Uh, virtually every important issue of the day needs to be fought there rather than at the national level. Because I'll be honest with you, you know, uh, you're not going to make any headway at all with uh, uh, John Tester or, for that matter, Steve Daines. You're not going to make any headway with those guys. They don't know who you are. Uh, they don't care. You know, they're um, same thing with uh, Rosendale, although less so because Rosendale has to stand for re-election every other year. So uh, I think he's more responsive. Um, and for the most part, I, I really like the things that he's done. But even him, I don't think you and I would would have any influence on that guy at all. So the way to deal with that, the real remedy is to strip them of their power and get it back in the hands of the states. So, <laughs> and, and so what is your problem with it? Is it, uh, I'm going to try to uh, assume what you're going to say or, or predict what you're going to say. Is it, is it that you think um, the state might actually have the power to regulate against the localities? Uh, is that your problem with decentralization? Well, so remember when uh, was it Missoula had an ordinance about uh, a gun ordinance of some kind a couple of years ago. I think we spoke about that. Um, so that's that's an example of uh, decentralization where locales are able to make their own uh, rules in violation of our rights. So if the purpose of government is to protect your rights and yet they don't, what's the remedy? You know, so you're living, let's say you're living in Missoula and well, you were living in Missoula and, uh, and uh, a, a decentralized body, the board of regents said you can't carry a gun on campus. You're an adult, uh, you know, nobody has the right to tell you, particularly since you haven't committed any crimes, you've got no record to speak of. You're not a threat to anybody except, you know, somebody trying to, uh, beat you up or rob you or something, um, which is a legitimate use of self-defense. And you can't. That's my problem with decentralization. So yeah. uh, so if I were to challenge you just on pure, pure decentralization here, because I've, I've been coming, I've been arguing with people about this for a little bit. And I, I had a Twitter thread um, that got around 100 comments of people sharing their opinion on decentralization versus protection of individual rights on any level. Um, with, with the Board of Regents case, I think the reason I would, would be able to argue that um, they should be able to defend my right on campuses, um, the, the reason the state would be able to do that is because the Board of Regents is a creation of the state at the first place. So it's kind of on the same level and therefore the universities are too. Um, so the state would be able to um, and should change the policies at the state level. Um, where I start to kind of worry, and I, I really don't know where I stand on this, is, is when the Missoula County themselves say that there is an ordinance, we don't want guns here, um, and then the state government tries to interfere. I see arguments both ways. I just, to me, it's like my most preferred vision of how politics and governance works is there are communities that are private communities like some something similar to HOAs where they all have their own policies and if if that HOA prohibited guns though I think that that would be foolish it would be within their property right to do so if that is a private community 
the closest thing that looks like that is a city or a county. It's not because it is a government, but it is closer, I think, to what I want than a state government. So that that's kind of where I struggle with this whole local state thing. Cause I know that the same thing happened with the vaccine policies and the mask policies. And I was in Missoula. So if Missoula did have a policy that required me to vaccine would have had to do so. Um, but, and, and maybe this is just because I'm way too philosophical and I need to abandon these, these principles when it comes to real life. Um, I, I think that I, I would say that Missoula has the right to do that, but I think then I would also have the ability to nullify it and, and ignore it on an individual level and potentially even lie and say that I am vaccinated when I'm not, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the way I look at it is that the difference between HOA and Missoula is that uh, HOA is uh, presumably voluntary. Right. And, you know, you can say that living in Missoula, going to the University of Montana is uh, voluntary as well. So just don't go to college. Well, uh, okay. The HOA is not really a government, um, although it, it carries out some government functions. Uh, and government's main job is to protect your rights. Well, if you want to, if you want to go into HOA and get rid of all your rights, which, by the way, you give up some rights when you go into you know, an HOA. Um, and you have an option. Uh, so uh, going in, you sign a document. I'm, I'm going to abide by these rules. I don't want any guns in here. Okay, that's, uh, that's a voluntary arrangement between you and the HOA. Since we don't ask for consent anymore in Missoula County or anywhere else, uh, you're not, you're being imposed upon by that government and they're taking your rights away and it's being done in involuntarily yeah especially when you consider what we talked about earlier where um is kind of captured it's it's uh, a creation of this body that has accredited this single school and there's no option for you to start another school and associate with a different school yeah i, I see the argument it's just <laughs> it's a very like tough stuff I have the same argument online uh, in a, well, the Tom Woods group. Have you spent any time in there? Yeah. Yeah. I look at it frequently. Uh, so there's a guy there that uh, I ask him questions because he's, he's a rights guy and libertarian, but he's not, he's not uh, really as philosophical as a lot of those guys are. And we talk back and forth while I ask him questions about, well, uh, you know, this scenario, that scenario. And, um, he's, he's of the opinion that only the states can protect our rights, uh, that the federal government is going to continually take our rights away. And he's right. They've, they've got too much power. That's why the court case uh, that we just heard was so astonishing, really. <laughs> Let's get rid of some power. We don't need this power. That's, I think, almost unprecedented. Anyway, so we had these arguments about that. And uh, like I said earlier in the podcast, if we're going to have states, they have to be responsive to the people and their job is to protect our rights. And when they don't, uh, we have to stop it. You know, and, it, and again, the easiest place, and I think he's right on this too, the easiest place to do that is in state governments. 
It is absolutely. Uh, you can't do it to the national government. And uh, Missoula County, you're not going to make any headway uh, in the county commissioners probably there, although it's going to be easier to do. You're going to have more access to them. You know, and so you can go make like a school, local school board. That's another instance where people can make a difference just by showing up to the school board meetings if they think something's nefarious going on. So, yeah, I don't think you abandon your your philosophy. I think you or your principles, libertarian principles. I think you maintain them, but you have to. I think continue with a uh, the reality when we become a libertarian utopia yeah then everybody gets to decide what they want in their voluntary communities and sooner the better but yeah uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon yeah and on the point of the the school board i just wanted to highlight this really quick um the biggest district school district in montana just got rid of the rule that required um people to mask up which is huge news um and i i hope that 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 um becomes a policy statewide but um, on, on this decentralization thing, uh, that's why the, the Supreme Court case Bruin was very challenging for me because I'm, I absolutely think that New York should not have these policies. But the question is, does the Supreme Court have any say over the state? And I understand arguments both ways. Um, I think I, and, and I think really what this comes down to is not a question of fundamental principles, but uh, um, praxis, like, like praxeology and strategy. Um, I think what we're arguing is just different strategies to get to the same end. And we're arguing which ones are, are better to get there. Um, to me, I, I would say that like if, if Missoula County is violating rights in any way, um, for how easy it would be to have the state impose um i would just like liberty lovers to enter their school boards at the local level and defend them there but i do see the other arguments for having the state interfere especially since um the localities especially in montana are creations of the state uh, i don't know if it should be that way but because I, I think it's because we are a territory montana was a territory um, the state was given the authority by the federal government and then the, the state created counties um, and then localities. I think that's the way that I've had it explained to me. Well, uh, there's a couple things there, but uh, I, I think, um, I don't know how to put this. Let's, let's go back to school district two, okay? Uh, before I forget, um, when they said uh, the masking, they actually suspended, but they didn't get rid of the ability of the superintendent to unilaterally uh, require mm -hmm. masking. I see. That's different, right? So um, the suspension doesn't mean completely negating that ability in the future should that uh, have come back. So that's something to remember about that deal. Although a huge win, we'll take it, obviously. And you know anybody that still thinks masks work, uh, they're not following the science. So, uh, all right. So that's something I wanted to make sure that we talked about because I followed that fairly closely um, in that decision. Uh, so where were we? I, I had just mentioned like um, Bruin and and the problem. I, I was just 
uh, oh. explaining further what, what we had been talking about, the differences between decentralization and individual rights, protecting it at every level. Well, states, so uh, the New York uh, situation that the US Supreme Court ruled on, uh, obviously I like the ruling, um, but uh, again, I would have not liked ruling otherwise. So uh, the difference is, and, and this is kind of a big difference, is that uh, the Supreme Court took a look at the Constitution and clearly in the Constitution, the Second Amendment says this, okay? Whereas uh, the right to privacy is not really in the Constitution. There's no right to an abortion in the Constitution. You know, and you can say the Fourth Amendment guarantees privacy, but I think that's kind of a stretch uh, in, in with regard to abortion. So that's kind of the main legal difference, which I know you understand. Uh, but I, I do think they should have left um, New York to its own devices there. Uh, it, it should be up to the state governments to determine those kinds of issues. You know, uh, the Second Amendment prohibited the national government from infringing on the right to keep and bear arms. And even though the 14th Amendment says what it says, um, I, I'm becoming convinced that the argument is that the, uh, it, the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. So that's, uh, that's an argument maybe for a different day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I, I think we should move on to um, what else you're thinking about in the legislature. But I just wanted to mention really quick that um, another cool thing about the Bruin case is that it um, cited Maj Ture's Black Guns Matter in, in a amicus briefing. It was, it was cited in the Supreme Court case. So many people got to read those words, that name. Um, and, and for people who want to listen to um, Maj Ture speak, I've had him on the show. It was episode 68. We talked about his organization, Black Guns Matter, the Libertarian Movement, and um, some other things. So that's cool because uh, the Supreme Court has cited now Black Guns Matter in an amicus brief. They also mentioned um, Lysander Spooner many times. Uh, I know that Scalia mentioned Spooner, I think, once, and then Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas has mentioned him too. So it's pretty cool that when, when you have Spooner, um, who was a radical abolitionist, um, uh, mentioned in the Supreme Court, in Supreme Court decisions, and then you also have Black Guns Matter. And I think that those cases, all of these cases combined where this is, has been mentioned, um, these have been mentioned, have been big gun cases at the national level. D.C. Heller, Spooner was mentioned there. Um, and now Bruin, uh, Mosteray and Black Guns Matter was cited there, um, and I do know that Amicus briefings are are different than the actual opinion themselves. They're they're like used to bolster the arguments, but it, it is cool that they were used to come to these decisions, even if uh, there is a little bit of frustration about how they came to these decisions. Um, I think that gave uh, Maj uh, some press, some positive press, and that's good. Uh, I. I don't follow him very carefully, and I frankly I haven't listened to your uh, interview with him yet, but I will. Yeah, it, it was a really good one, and it's it's much shorter too. I I only had him on for like twenty minutes, um, but I pushed it to thirty. I kept asking, "Can I keep you on for <laughs> one more question?" Um, and I got to meet him in Reno, which was awesome. But um, 
yeah, just to kind of wrap up, I, I didn't expect to spend so much time on, on, on the abortion thing and get into that conversation about decentralization, but is, is there anything else that you're, you're going to focus on? Are there any other pieces of legislation you're looking into? Um, what else do you want to talk about? Well, uh, one of the things I told the people on the doors, especially was that I, uh, one of my main goals is going to be protect Montanans from the federal government, particularly the overreach that I see. And um, so a couple of things that have been concerning me lately is uh, I, I, I do think that the national government has gone stark raven mad with regard to uh, printing money, uh, putting too much money out in circulation. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, prices go up. I say, oh my gosh, what happened? I don't know. Well, uh, the Federal Reserve has been, frankly, uh, given quite literally the government a blank check. And now in this inflation, we're having to pay for it. Now, I'm not sure how much Montana can do on the local level. I, I have a couple of ideas about that. Uh, and I know some people are working on some things, but uh, that that's something that that we can't sustain as a nation, and in fact, uh, I think Montana's Montana should be pretty sick of picking up some of those bills. Uh, you know, on the insanity that's in um, Ukraine, uh, I, I got a hold of somebody yesterday asking for the finished draft of the uh, defend the guard bill, and the draft isn't finished. I would be happy to support or even sponsor, uh, introduce that legislation into the state. Uh, I think that's a good idea, a great idea. And I think Montana needs to do that. Yeah. And I want to connect you to a lot of those people too. I'm, I've been reaching out to people behind the scenes, um, trying to get that bill and then uh, reach out to um, the bring our troops home people. Cause I think that they would be able to bring a lot of people to testify on that bill and, and get some support behind it. Um, on the on the um, inflation point, because all of this is so interconnected, like in, um, without inflation, you can't fund Ukraine. There's no way that this would ever be able to happen. Um, the government would not be able to do any of the crazy things that we've talked about in our previous episodes, like the OSHA mandate. Um, a lot of these agencies would not exist if they didn't have the power to deficit spend and get a blank check check from the Federal Reserve. Um, you and I have talked about a potential bill um, that could be introduced, something that I, the kind of the Mac Machiavellian in me wants to introduce a bill or see a bill that um, is called the Oro e Plata, Plata bill, uh, gold and silver, um, because that's Montana's motto. And, and what it would do is repeal all legal tender laws. And I think that that's one way that you can get around that. And um, unfortunately, I think it's also another way that, <laughs> you kind of declare war on the Federal Reserve and and kind of secede from it. So, I mean, a lot of people have said that that's a, uh, seceding from the dollar is one of the reasons that uh, a lot of conflicts have started, like Libya and Gaddafi. Um, there's conspiracies around that. But I, I think that that's the only way you get around it. Um, I think if, if you allow competition of money here at the local level, I know other states have, have started to do this. I think Utah... Um, just legalize their gold bags, which are those um, uh, gold kind of dollars. Yeah, I've looked into them. Yeah, so I think something like that would be 
incredible. And I think that it would be a, a huge blow to the federal government um, for that to happen. But I think it's also the only way that you, you check this. I think it's the only way that we avoid um, disaster. Uh, Ron Paul has talked about the, the moral link to inflation and how people, when they continue to get you know, high credit, um, that's where you, you get a lot of high time preference behaviors. You get these people who are highly materialistic. You get people who um, care about abundance and, and uh, pleasure rather than focusing on the, the important things like family. Um, and that's also how you blow up bubbles in the house, housing market because people are taking loans when they can't afford them, when we don't have enough savings. Um, so I think it's a very important issue um, just when, when you link inflation to rampant gum, government spending, as well as the, the moral problems that we have in this country. So I, I'd love to see something like that. And I, I know the 10th Amendment um, Center people have a lot of bills like that, that that we could probably look at. Yeah, I've reached out to those guys a number of times uh, and kind of gave up on them. I haven't heard back, uh, sent them a couple of messages well more than a couple <laughs> but uh like i said i i'll i'll give up until i hear from them i'm not gonna pester them forever uh, but i do think that they have some some stuff that i've read that i, I actually quite i like quite a, a bit now uh, back to the currency i i do i talked about that before i've spoken to somebody about uh trying to uh write legislation with regard to that currency, but I actually don't think that that has much of a chance. I don't know that for sure, but I, my guess is that we're not gonna be able to do that, at least maybe not this session. Although by the time that happens, who knows, it could be you know, acute problem, uh, much worse than now. And I do think that inflation is gonna double yeah. by that time. So maybe it'll be time then. And, and that is obviously a, an idea uh, that we could, we could pursue. And one of the things that I suggested to a guy and kind of in jest, I said, Montana should get its own currency and call it Gian Forte bucks. Maybe it'll <laughs> have a chance of passing. Or at least just to like, uh, as a marketing thing for Gian Forte, like if he just did that and didn't really mean it, but kind of used it as like an educational thing, that would be really cool. Uh, here's some yeah. Gian Forte bucks. And then maybe he could just continue to print them too, to make fun of the federal reserve. Um, <laughs> something like that I think would be just awesome. Um, and I want to organize some protests at the federal reserve bank in um, Helena. I think that that would oh. be really cool. Yeah, it um, would be, you know, I work for those guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you told that story on the first podcast. <laughs> and at that point you didn't really know much about the federal reserve. I think you were like yeah. a student, right? Yeah. I was still uh, at uh, Carroll and I had no idea the kinds of things that they, I, nobody ever told me about the Federal Reserve. I had no idea even what it was. I go to work for a bank. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So before we jump off, uh, there's a, we should probably do this at a different time, obviously, but uh, I, I do want to eventually talk about the January 6th guys again. Um, I'm partway through your Gene Epstein interview. I've uh, mm -hmm. been enjoying that quite a bit. Uh, I just learned today, today, yesterday, about the DeShaney Doctrine. I've never heard of it. Uh, have you ever heard of the DeShaney Doctrine? I don't think so. 
So I used to tell you guys about a case uh, that, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of it. Back in the 80s where uh, DC cops showed up and uh, these people were getting brutally attacked and they didn't do anything. Well, there's a doctrine in place based on that case and some other cases that says that the police have no individual duty to um, defend or protect you. So they can, they can not uh, act even if they're witnessing a crime. Now, of course, they all, almost all of them will, but this whole thing came up with regard to that uh, shooting in Uvalde. You know, they, they stood outside. I don't know what they were doing out there. And uh, I, I don't know enough about it to comment, except to say that it seems like uh, there should be a lawsuit and yet you can't sue them. Um, yeah. Do you know if it was uh, Warren v. District of Columbia? That's it. Yeah. 1981, right? Yeah. 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 It says the respective trial judges held that the police were under no specific legal duty to provide protection. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I was I was just talking about that uh, with with Quinn yesterday. Um, he we, we we were talking about this, and to me, there there's no way um, you you get around having this discussion without wondering if there's ulterior motives here, because there's there's 400 police officers in that area. Supposedly, the chief um, didn't know that he was uh, working that day. So he didn't have any access to radios or something like that. Um, so who was giving orders that day? Um, and then also you, you see really weird things like on the, on the footage, like the hour and a half long footage of police just standing there as they can see kids being killed. Um, there's, there's this video I saw yesterday of um, police officers surrounding the door, the classroom door that the kids are in and a cop walks up and he's saying that his wife just texted him that she's been shot and he's going to go into the room, but the police hold him back and pull him back. Um, and, and he just goes, she says she's been shot. And to me, I'm like, what's happening there that he doesn't just go past those police officers right there, uh, threaten them and enter the classroom, regardless of like how, do you hear that your wife has been shot? You have access to guns. You've been trained. How do you not tell those police officers as a police officer yourself that you aren't going to listen and that you're going to go into that room, regardless of what they say? I, I can't fathom it. And the fact that that happened, but not only with just that one case, that one police officer, but all 400 that were on the scene somehow just listened to orders and, and didn't go into the room themselves. I don't, and wasn't it, um, it was, a uh, an ice agent, right. That actually ended up stopping him or am I thinking of a different case? No, that's to my understanding. That's exactly what happened. Uh, he just said, no, not whether they allowed him to go through there, go in there. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, he took a, a round, I think glanced off his hat or his head. Uh, so he clearly, uh, was courageous enough to go in and stop that. Now, I, I don't know why uh, there was no attempt earlier by the police 
I don't know anything about that part of it. Uh, I've read as much as I can about it. I still don't understand the timeline. Uh, but the police officers that I know personally, uh, there's not a single one of them would have held back. Yeah. I know that. You know, so I don't know what happened there. But you can't assume, like I said, and I think that's a huge problem that we need to be able to do something under those circumstances. Uh, so that's something I maybe look at. I just don't, yeah, I, I just have to see. I'm going to have to spend some time looking into that and seeing what Montana, if anything, Montana can do. There's, um, uh, there are a few things. So I know there's qualified immunity, which is the, the typical one that, that people um, like to talk about. Um, an argument that I heard the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire had made that um, in the same way that courts argue that they can pierce the corporate veil and they can um, sue uh, people who are a part of corporations rather than the corporations themselves, like that happened with Fannie and Freddie um, in 2008. I think it was actually the CEOs and the leaders who got sued, not the, and the one, they were the ones who were prosecuted rather than um, the organizations themselves. Uh, they said in the same way that that can happen, that should be able to happen with police. Um, there should be a standard, obviously, to protect them in certain cases. But what, what people also need to know is this isn't just police departments that, that are protected by qualified immunity. I think that this is one of the art, the reasons why it's so difficult to uh, convince people, especially conservatives, to get rid of qualified immunity is because it's only focusing on police departments. Right. This is also what protects health board people, the ones that locked you down. This is the same people. This, this protects teachers in some cases, I think, too. Um, so, I mean, this is about all government, governmental people and, and officials. Um, the other thing that, that I've heard um, talked about, and I know there's an organization in Montana trying to uh, pursue legislation on this front, and I want to interview the guy. Um, they want to uh, pass legislation for grand juries and allow um, uh, people to uh, create a grand jury to prosecute governmental officials. I, I don't know what the exact process would be, but I think you would have to appeal to a judge yeah, I would assume what happens is a judge has to approve a grand jury. Um, and then if that happens, then you can you can prosecute a governmental official. Hmm. So those are some avenues. But I, I totally agree that um, something needs to be done on that front, because uh, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how it, it was possible that after I mean, just a couple days into us hearing what happened in Uvalde, how the narrative was at all about guns and the second amendment after you hear about the absolute negligence of 400 police officers i how can it be any other conversation other than the fact that um we should privatize defense and allow people to defend themselves because they can't wait they can't wait for one the response time and then two to actually expect them to have um uh the, the requisite um, amount of force required to stop the threat. Like that, the case of the, the guy who um, stopped the mall shooter, I forget where it was just a couple of days ago. Like imagine if he wasn't there and they had to wait for police to show up, but then also imagine if the police weren't competent enough and it was a similar case like Uvalde, what, what do you do? 
yeah, pretty clearly the the remedy for, for Uvalde probably would have been somebody armed in that school. Uh, yeah, I, it's just hard. To, it's it's even hard to talk about. To be honest with you, uh, the situation is so horrible, and you know I, I don't know I don't know the timeline either. Um, were all those fatalities did they occur right away? And it didn't matter if they if the police broke in. Uh, I don't really know. Uh, I I do know though that um, again I want to reiterate that the people that I know that are in law enforcement would would have gone in immediately without even asking. They wouldn't have asked actually for permission. They would have just gone. Yeah. And so you know what's the difference between them and and those guys there? I don't know. Just horrible situation. But I, I do think. Uh, somebody armed in that school would have had a lot better chance at stopping that uh, or at least lessening the uh, severity of that incident than anybody on the outside. Yeah. I had a uh, one teacher, I'm not going to say their name um, at uh, when I was going to high school that when we did these lockdown drills, what we had to do is we looked around the room and I, I'm so some people would probably be offended uh, about this, but I'm so grateful we did this. Um, we looked at items that could be thrown um, and, and what we could do if, if an intruder came in. Um, and I, I think that that's such a, a good thing for a, a teacher to want to express their, their, their kids that, you know, they, they do want to defend them and they also want them to have the ability to defend themselves. They're not going to tell them to just huddle in a corner. They're going to say, if you can do something. Um, so we would grab like desks. Some people would grab books. Some people would grab like rulers. And I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you don't see that um, a gun-free zone is just a target. I, I had many people, we, there, there were some interviews that were done at UM um, after the legislature passed that, that bill allowing campus carry. And one of the arguments was that the presence of guns will cause more stress for students. And I just don't want that. And I, I sympathize with the argument, but to me, it's like, you're still not avoiding that problem. Um, right. the, the, honestly, the stress is even higher. I think if, if you, if it's a gun-free zone, because you know that some people might be, and, and the people you don't want carrying are, are the ones carrying privately. Um, so you want people around you to be able to neutralize that threat. So I, I just, I don't understand the argument. I haven't heard a better argument for um, not allowing people to carry, but uh, I'd love to hear the argument. I just haven't. Right. Well, and that's, uh, so the, was it Indiana? Was it where that the mall, uh, last the mall shooting? Mall shooting? I think that's right. I mean, he was, he started shooting within seconds. I think it was 15 seconds when the guy uh, started his rampage and, and he put eight bullets in him. Eight out of 10. Eight out of 10. I had somebody on social media ask where the other two bullets go. Well, who cares? Eight of them out of 10 went in the, went in the shooter. And uh, so, like I said, 15 seconds. Now the best response time the police are gonna have are gonna be at least in the minutes at least, you know, and so, uh, yeah, people and those kids on the college campus, they, they might 
be stressed out about guns. And frankly, you know, we had a, we were at a, a public deal here back in June and there was a guy standing there among all those people and he, he was armed. You could see he had a, a revolver on his hip and that made me a little uncomfortable, sort of, until I thought about it. You know, <laughs> uh, so I think to me, the rapid response time is is going to make all the difference between literally life and death. And it's too bad that that we've told people that those uh, gun-free zones, uh, we, we need to have those, especially around schools, considering the school shooting. Yeah, I just think stress around firearms, it's, it's not like it's, it's a bad thing or um, being afraid of firearms isn't a bad thing per se. It's just you need to like aim that fear at, at the right thing and, and use it in the right respect, like proper training, things like Maj Torea is doing in Philadelphia, where, where they're teaching people about firearms. And um, I think the, the most important thing that, that he's been able to demonstrate is that uh, they do have the, the guys you don't want to have guns have guns. Um, and, and just educating people about the types of guns that they have, um, even if they don't want to carry, just being able to um, show people and educate people about the types of guns that exist out there, um, even if you don't want to own them yourselves, just so you can be educated about it and, and understand the threat. Um, I think that everyone should <laughs> have to go through that. If, if there is going to be public education, I think people should at least know about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just an unfortunate thing. And um, I hope that Montana can be kind of, uh, I mean, we're already, I think, spearheading a lot of constitutional carry stuff um, and, and kind of being an example of the Second Amendment and defense nationwide. Yeah. So I hope we can only um, push further into that frontier. Yeah, yeah, so I've got all kinds of stuff, but uh I think we've gone as far, as long as you want to go. So yeah, definitely. Um, we'll have to do this again. I'm in billings for the next year. So maybe we can even do in-person ones, but if you want to let people know, is there like a website they can go to any social media they can follow? I I've been pushing you. I think you need to get Twitter because I think that you would build a following <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, is there anywhere that people can go to support you and, and follow you? So I, uh, I do have, um, a Facebook page, and right now I can't remember the. But it's Lee Deming for HD55, I think, is uh, where you go. And then um, I'm on MeWe as well, uh, but I'm only uh, on that Tom Wood Show Elite page. I'm on a couple of pages, but you can find me there. And that's actually where you're going to get more personal opinions. Uh, I have a website as well, but the only thing that's on there is a contact form. So uh, if you want to go to uh, Lee4Montana.com. I think that's the name of it. Um, if you want to contact me, you can. And that's probably the easiest way to contact me if you want to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always fun. And I'm sure we're going to do many more of these over the next year. Well, I appreciate it, Liam. Thanks for asking me. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon. <laughs>